Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon, and I'm delighted to be joined by Damien Brown of Standard Access. Uh, Standard Access are the creators of the digital spine operating system for smart buildings. Damien, you're very welcome back to the show. It's been a while since we joined you from your office in Dingle. How have the last six months been for the Standard Access team? Carol, yeah, thanks for thanks for having us on again. Um, yeah, like like every business has been um, been challenging, but uh, we we were always a remote team anyway, so it didn't really affect us that much from a, from a work point of view. And we've always been collaborating online, so um, uh, it's 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 you know it's a challenging time, but we're looking forward to the end of this uh, this period later on this year. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that. Um, so since we spoke last, um, I saw in the uh, in the newspapers that Standard Access had a big win and a hard fought win. So congratulations. Um, just around Christmas time there, the company won, uh, well, secured a US patent. Um, you might just explain to us what that is and why it's significant. And was it worth spending five years battling to get that that uh, patent? Yeah, it was a long battle. Um, it, w- it was tedious and it was uh, time-consuming, but uh, in the end, it was worth it. Was worth doing it. Um, we we applied in 2015, and it took actually took the full five years for it to come through. And normally, those things take, only take about two years. But uh, we, we got a patent on what's called monetized time-restricted access. So that means using your phone to book a space, pay for it, and using that phone to to, to access through the door. Using um, we, we developed. Uh, or intellectual property around um, encrypted so- audio sound on your phone. And, Very good. Um, so, is, is what would be the use cases of that? Where would we see that in operation? So, you know, ever you've seen the, ad, the advent of um, co-working and flex operators around the world. Uh, WeWork would be the big name. Um, so the ability to um, to book and pay and reserve space um, pay as you go. And use it when you want to use it, and uh, and this we we went a little step further in, in introducing the key as well and security around that. So it's like book, pay, reserve, have your key, and walk through the door. Um, Damien, I'm marvelling at the foresight here because back in 2015, the conversation around flex space wasn't quite as um, robust as it is now, and certainly the need wasn't as as um, strong as it is now, particularly in light of uh, the pandemic. So, what what led you to that back in twenty in twenty fifteen? Well, what was um, your background? I was in commercial real estate all my life, so I was buying and selling investments in Ireland, the UK, and, and a little bit in Europe. Uh, so, managing tenants, um, uh, getting lease assigned, uh, maintenance uh, engineers, uh, carry out repairs, and some small developments as well. Of course, the recession came uh, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and um, just trying to cut costs left, right, and center, and just looking at trying to look objectively at the whole uh, uh, portfolio and managing portfolios and facilities management. And when I was looking objectively, I was like, okay, this is completely insane because we're repeating the same things in every site and uh, we're not using technology. So I was like, okay, this is burning a hole in my pocket. I'm going to do something about it. And it took me a couple of years, but I eventually got the light bulb moment in 2013 that um, I could maybe use technology to sell space, rent out space and utilities um, using mobile phones and, and laptops. 
so it came from 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 a, a hole in my pocket, really. So it's like a, it's like someone said to me, "It's a practitioner-led solution." Yeah, yeah, and then look, we know that that's generally what drives early stage innovation. Now, um, so it, congratulations again on securing the patent. It's um, it's a huge deal and and it's a massive achievement. So well done to all the team. Um, but in Ireland uh, and certainly in Ireland and the UK, your team would probably be best known for creating the digital spine solution for smart buildings. So um, this is one of the things that actually we've referenced on the show before. Because every week we try to meet uh, prop tech startups at, at different stages of startup, and they're generally working through um, you know, through um, the installation of IoT devices, so sensors, and then they're feeding data back in. And then you know we, we've talked at length about the importance of using that data and understanding it um, and having it uh, intelligently um, supporting decision making. But one of the areas that we haven't covered a lot are all the points of vulnerability that that then opens up and how vulnerable that smart building becomes and the data. It's that that's the, the transmission of the data between all of these sensors. Um, and uh, is, is it fair to say that that conversation just wasn't, maybe it was happening, but it certainly wasn't very loud, you know, um, about the security of data now that these buildings are being fitted with all these IoT devices. So will you explain what the Digital Spine operating system does and why it's important? Sure. Um, well, first and foremost, our, our two core values would be on data privacy and the secure data transmission and the security of people using the buildings we put our technology into. So uh, even back in first day 2015, I wanted to not alone um, to monetize space and the access control, I also wanted to be able to build people for telecoms and air conditioning, heating, lighting, uh, usage of everything in the building. But at, unfortunately, the, the technology wasn't there and I didn't have the resources to do that either. So I just concentrated on the uh, access control. Um, 2020, um, we started uh, to reevaluate everything because of the COVID. So um, we thought, okay, can we, can, can we do this now? Can we bring a system into a building that can connect to all the different siloed uh, bits of information? So your HVAC, you could have elevators, you could have um, access control, security, CCTV, compliance hardware, software, uh, tenant apps, um, landlord apps, um, and they're all siloed bits of information using different protocols to give you information on the dashboards. So um, it's a bit insane to, to expect landlords to adapt all these technologies and, um, and to pay their staff to use them. So <clears throat> we wanted to... Uh, you know, as well as that, then you, you've the IoT sensors for water flow and, and monitoring electricity usage and stuff like that. And all these devices that are going into buildings, not all of them, but a lot of them would have a, a lot of security vulnerabilities in the systems. So somebody could actually hack into your building, and it has happened in America last year, uh, not publicized well, but it will happen this year in London or New York or some famous building. The hackers, just for the hell of it, are going to go in and are going to shut it down. They're going to turn off the lights, they're going to stop the elevator, they're going to unlock the doors. They're going to switch off the air conditioning, which is going to become a major news uh, item, unfortunately, because of COVID. And um, so we uh, obviously been aware ourselves about, about secure data transmission. We thought, OK, you know, can we help our clients uh, adapt technology faster, but be secure in the knowledge that the data that's been generated and the vulnerabilities, um, uh, you know, ha have been secured and, 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 and uh, disabled. So. 
you know, looking at all these different these different data sets and all these different protocols, how do you do that? Well, while we do that, and what we're doing is we're building, uh, if you want to call it a black box for a building, that will connect to all the different uh, technologies and use in the building and convert all those protocols into one singular protocol. Uh, so the user will have one dashboard, and on that dashboard, they can select by room or by floor or by building, and they can see the usage by individual or by by by, by for, for the movement of people, the consumption of electricity, heating, lighting, um, and all, you know, are the, are, 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 is everything being compliant? Are we up to date and everything in real time? And then go check, go check back in a couple, maybe a year back in time as well. But all that data then, once we've collected it and we've secured, we're securing all the data being transmitted in the building, um, then we start to uh, apply machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms to make sense and identify the valuable data and give it back to the user and say, listen, you know, here's the data, you know, these actions can be take, can be done now autonomously and reduce down your amount of labor and people you have managing your, your buildings. Um, you know, and that data is, is quite valuable to people. But at the moment, it's, it's just, it's all over the place. It's disparate. And um, it, so that's where the digital spine came from. Basically, a digital twin. So in construction, you have digital twins for construction. This is a digital twin for operations. And um, it's a, it's an operating system for, for a building. So think of like a, a phone. A phone has a, an app store and you can go and buy whatever services you want through the app store. This is like a black box phone, you want to call it for a building, for a real estate building. And then you can choose all the different technology you want to plug into it. So... Yeah. Um, Damien, excuse me, Damien, I'm, I, you know, I'm aware that um, if we were having this conversation 15 months ago or 12 months ago, even perhaps, the conversation would have been uh, very much geared towards sustainability. So um, so let, let's just discuss that before, uh, before we move on. In terms of sustainability, um, so I, I, am I right in assuming that your system can, um, you know, track the energy performance of the building um, in order to, I, I know that your company is specialist in artificial intelligence. So is that how that's being used to prompt energy efficiencies, to prompt actions? Of course, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, we're, we, we build our hardware agnostic as well. So we're open to other vendors uh, uh, that might have a fantastic HVAC product that might already be a vendor to a, to a potential client of ours that says, hey, you can still use that system. We don't mind. We'll just plug it into ours and, and plug in the CCTV and plug in the access control and plug in the tenant apps and the, and the landlord apps and put it, just put all the data into one place and make it, make it very secure. Um, but yeah, it, the, the HVAC systems that we... That, that companies are developing and uh, putting into buildings, they can save you a lot of money on heating and on lighting, but more importantly, reducing your emissions. Because, and you know, I think uh, we've reached almost an inflection point in the last 12 months um, where companies are finally deciding, okay, we need to adopt technology because uh, we want to make people feel safe coming back into buildings, you know, just from the health of the building, the air, and, um, you know, and as well as that, um, you can see the right. We've all seen the rise of the green type funding in the world now. With, with banks are saying, "Well, how healthy is your building? Um, how efficient is it? Um, are you going to make it more efficient if it's a small building?" And with our technology, we can help people do that because when they want to sell that product in eight years' time, or ten years' time, or twelve years' time, the people who are going to buy that product, they might be allowed by it. They might be able to get finance for it in ten years' time when it becomes across the board that you know your building has to be at a certain level before they get finance to come and buy your product. So you want to enable the yield to stay high, you've got to invest now. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, 
thankfully it's starting to happen now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting there, you know, you you likened this almost to the digital digital twin that the construction industry would be well familiar with. And in fact, you know, we've, we've spoken at length about how, um, you know, by delivering a digital twin, the contractor is actually handing over two valuable assets, one a real asset, one a digital asset, um, but they both have value. Uh, and, you know, are we are we at a stage where even for leases on commercial buildings, you're going to be handing over what is effectively a digital twin with a health check, you know, with a, with a health record. Um, so almost like we do with our cars, as in a, a service history with our cars. So you can tell what the performance has been um, you know what the what the uh, energy performance, particularly, has been in terms of emissions, carbon footprint, and how that's going to impact on the sustainability goals of the particular company. Yeah, hundred percent. I think within four or five years, I think um, if you don't have that information digitally available, um, people won't won't buy your building because there's too much risk involved, and they don't want to hassle of it. They'll expect you to do it. They'll expect you to invest in technology. They'll expect you to absorb that cost because. Um, you know, they, they don't want, if you're not doing it, why aren't you doing it? And um, so, um, you know, it, 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 I think it'll become commonplace with it quicker than, than we think. And um, like the digital information will be available in real time to the, to the operators. And, um, you know, the banks who are going to fund the next buyer of that building will say, well, well, show us the data. And you say, okay, here's, here's, your, here's the, the way into the, into the platform. Here's your keys, your cryptographic keys. Go and knock yourself out and check out all the data for the last 10 years or 12 years or whatever it is. So it can be done in all buildings as well. Um, yeah, as well and as you can bills. see you can see how that would impact on the value as well. So obviously the more information, uh, the more valuable it is, but also the more information then that should be prompting the right action as well. Yeah. Um, David, for your own team, when when does the standard access team get involved in projects? At any stage, Carl, uh, we do a lot of retrofits um, and um, and we do new buildings well. Ideally, at design stage, we'd like to sit down with the architects and the surveyors and uh, understand their requirements for, for, of their client and um, maybe give them a recommendation of what technology to use. Um, we can say, look, uh, we, we recommend a list of vendors for that, for that type of uh, access control or CCTV or HVAC um, and tenant apps or, you know, if you want, we can uh, we can customize this if you and we can white label. I can brand it to, to meet your requirements and and something that will stand the test of time because um, you know you want this to be there. Uh, it, when people buy technology, the biggest fear is will it be redundant in twelve twelve months time or twenty four months time? So what we're doing is we're 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 getting, we're eliminating the redundancy risk for people saying okay, if you want to change the access control in three years time from that vendor, from that vendor no problem, just plug it out and plug in the new one. So that's what the, what the digital spine operating system is about. It's making it interoperable and, um, and and not being confined to having to buy everything off us. You can buy off wherever you want, um, it, you know, so. Yeah, you know, a lot of these things, you know, we've been discussing it, um, you know, through the show for, for close to three years. But, um, you know, I, and one of the things I've seen is that there's, um, prior to the digital spine um, operating system, there was a lot of separate things going on that didn't work well together. And in fact, you know, we see that across construction tech. We see it across residential prop tech as well. In fact, it's something that, you know, has really been identified as a, as a problem and also almost a point of resistance um, in, in terms of adoption, but also allowing the sector to grow. So I, I'm always aware that I'm coming at this maybe from a different place than maybe commercial property operators who 
you know, this has been on the radar for a while, but they haven't taken steps towards it. Maybe, you know, they brought in something to measure energy performance efficiencies or something, but, you know, they haven't really gotten started. So, you know, this is this is a big question. I hope it's not an unfair question, but I mean, what kind of advice can you give to to uh, commercial landlords, um, but also to the construction, um, to the construction industry who need to be familiar with this? Um, but what kind of advice can you give for for professionals really just embarking on delivering smart buildings? Um, uh, reach out to the, to the, property, the property, community, property community in Ireland and the UK, I suppose, um, you know, um, and uh, maybe attend some webinars, get familiar, familiarise yourself with technology and, um, you know, go and talk to people who are using technology already. Go and talk to some of the, some of the, the people who are taking the lead in this area. And um, and see you know what's the best device you know are, is that type of access control good is that type of CCTV good is that a is that a good system was it easy to adopt was it easy to integrate uh, you know so that's one thing we do is uh, if you already have technology in a building we'll integrate it with that technology with that building management system um, so um, you, you know like I said you don't have to buy everything from scratch again. Um, Very good. Well, I'm going to I'm going to add one one thing to that piece of advice, and that is to go onto your website because actually I find myself um, being referred to your website actually whenever we look at issues of or we're googling issues of uh, security or IoT. Um, so I know standard access has become kind of the the uh, the place for guidance um, for IoT and artificial intelligence and, and indeed securing smart buildings, um, not just in Europe but globally. So. Um, you know, it's something that that through PropTech Ireland makes us incredibly proud of your team, you know, that that you're really pioneering um, globally. So best of luck to the team and continued success. Um, again, thank you so much for joining me today. That was Damien Brown of Standard Access, creators of the Digital Spine Operating System for Smart Buildings. We need to take a quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com I'm now delighted to be joined by Professor Andrew Baum, Professor of Practice Said Business School from the University of Oxford. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today. This is your first time on the show, but your name has been thrown around quite often. You've been quoted quite heavily here in our prop tech sec- in our prop tech section. So thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. I've got happy memories of being in Dublin and it's nice to nice to be back, even if it's just um, remotely. Thank you. Well, Andrew, you're very welcome into studio. At the moment, we're, we're recording from home as well. But when we're back in studio, we'd be only too delighted to welcome you there. Um, so, Andrew, as I mentioned, you know, your name will be familiar to anybody who's been listening into the show. We're now in our third year so. Yeah, like I said, you've been quoted quite heavily during that time. Um, but you might just give people a little bit of a background because as I introduced there, you are with the, the professor of practice with Said Business School. Um, but how long have you been involved uh, in the real estate uh, and lecturing in the real estate industry? Um, a really, really, really long time, Carol. So I, this is, um, I, I went to uh, Reading University to study real estate when I was 17 years old in 1970. Um I, I started teaching at the university in 1975. Um, I've got three real estate degrees from the University of Reading. Uh, since 1990, I've been working for either one day or two days a week in the university, whether it be Reading, Cambridge or Oxford. 
and doing some visiting stuff in North Carolina and Sydney. Um, I was also visiting uh, examiner at DIT in Bolton Street for a while, which I really enjoyed. Um, but for the other three or four days a week, I've been um, in, in business either as a uh, CIO, chief investment officer, or a head of strategy or head of research for people like Prudential, Nuveen, um, CBRE Global Investors, uh, Invesco, and others. So uh, I continue to have a business interest and a business life, and the classroom is a place where I really enjoy. Uh, I enjoy being in the classroom, and I think the students probably appreciate the uh, the real life case studies. Yeah, I, I no doubt. Um, I didn't realise that you had spent time uh, at DIT. So were you visiting there? Yeah, I was the I was the examiner for three years, I think, and um, yeah, always always great fun. Um, always great to go into the the Museum of Irish History and being told that the English aren't as nice as we think we are. You know, so uh, I mean, I really enjoyed my cultural exposure in Dublin and um, I'm looking forward to coming back. Oh, very good. Well, actually, when you are coming back, be sure to visit. Uh, DIT is now um, TU, uh, Technical University Dublin, and the new facility at Grange Gorman is stunning. So you will get a, a great surprise when you visit that. So I recommend it. Um, but in, in terms of your background, so it's good that you have that, uh, that you've kind of kept that one foot in industry and one foot in academia. How important is that when we're looking at innovation at a very real level that can actually um, impact the industry and that that is uh, readily um, accessible to the industry. How important is that um, to, to have the, the commercial and the academic focus for an industry as traditional as real estate? Well, uh, this is a constant, there's a constant tension here. You know, it, it, I mean, from my perspective, it's ideal to be partly in business and partly at the university. From the university's point of view, it's not ideal because it needs completely committed academics who are going to publish in the best journals. And to do that, it takes a long time. You know, the average time to publish in a really good journal is probably two years. And the world of innovation in real estate might move slowly, but it doesn't move that slowly. You know, you don't want to wait. You don't write something and wait two years for it to be published. So there's a compromise going on all the time, you know, and, um, you know, I can't be a brilliant business person if I'm only working three days a week. So there's a compromise all over the place. But I have to say, I think the, the benefit of doing both is that I can organize my thoughts when I'm in the university. I can, I can construct a PowerPoint presentation pretty well. And I think that goes down pretty well when you're talking to business people that need their thoughts structuring and being organized. And it works the other way around in the classroom, as I've said before. So. Um, the, the, I think what happens is you just have to work six days a week, which I've been doing for you know the last twenty five years or so, and um, and just work hard, you know. I, I think that you'll find that's quite symptomatic of every entrepreneur in the industry, um, and particularly what we're seeing across the startup sector in prop tech and construction technology at the moment. Uh, but one of the things I was really interested about is um, I first became really aware and involved. Um, I, I think I learned the term uh, prop tech back in. Uh, about 2015, but I'd been very passionate about innovation and I'd been in the industry for about a decade before that. Um, so it wasn't so much that the innovation was new, um, the use of technology was, but there was a lot of new language and terminology around it. Um, but your report in about 2016 was one of the foundational um, pieces of research. So you might just take us back how to how how you got involved in that. Um. Yeah, sure. And I, I think I think we we need to go back to '97, really '97, '98. I mean, I was working in the real estate industry in London in '96, '97, '98, and uh, 
uh, the the internet came along, so email came along, and you know, we, before that, we were actually sending uh, paper letters and all that sort of stuff, and using the telephone. So uh, observing the internet, I, I saw the dot com boom of ninety nine, um, and I got in, you know I got I got involved in the dot com boom in ninety nine two thousand. The dot com boom is really best remembered as a dot com bust. You know, the 2001-2002 period led to a massive bust. There's a lot of money going into property technology in 1999-2000. A lot of businesses that have that, that survived today, like uh, CoStar, Argus, um, in the UK, Rightmove, in the US, Zillow, these sort of residential listing sites, they came out of the ashes of the prop, of the dot-com bust. Um, I started, a, you know, first of all, I was, I was editor of a property encyclopedia in 1999, and we realized about two years in that we should really be putting the thing online. And we had to completely redesign our business model and go for an online business information product. In 2001, I also started a, um, a database of property funds globally, and that immediately went online. You know, it, Originally, it was CD, CD-ROMs that we were posting out to people, but eventually that became a website and that still exists today. So I think I, I, think I did start a prop tech business in 2001, and I, and I call that, you know, PropTech 1.0. So that, that period is PropTech 1.0. Then, then sort of there's the dot-com bust. We went through a, a period when people weren't really interested in technology. It was all about money. It was all about bank debt, buying as many buildings as you could. The, the, the property boom of 2003, 4, 5, 6, which Dublin is probably the epicenter of it, if you think about it. You know, the, the boom that was going on was incredible. You know, the amount of bank debt that was being secured was incredible. So nobody was really worried about technology at that time. It was all about debt. And then, you know, the, the crash, 2008 crash, coincided with the launch of the Apple App Store. And uh, the iPhone 4 was out in 2008. The App Store was launched. And you've got a younger generation who are now skeptical about the way in which the traditional markets can bust themselves. You know, we've got a, a bust banking system. We've got people that you can't trust running funds um, you've got people just scripts taking huge bonuses out of the industry when people are losing their jobs. So, you know, there must be a better way of doing this. So the app store appeared to be a better way of communicating. And if you think about this, this is one of my most sort of simple rules or, or sort of aid memoir is the world is just full of billions of rooms and billions of people. And those billions of rooms and billions of people are trying to connect with each other all the time. You know, we're, we're constantly looking to go into residential accommodation, offices, shops, pubs, bars, whatever. And, and before 2008, the way in which rooms communicated with people was through brokers, through newspaper adverts, through, you know, on, through websites. But it was pretty clunky. And the app store suddenly gave us this formula whereby people could go through a platform to communicate directly with the rooms. And of course, that's Airbnb. So Airbnb is created in 2008. And um, and it became a you know a billion dollar business a unicorn and then we can repeat that formula over and over again we've got rooms we've got people and we've got an app and that's that's really the genesis of PropTech 2.0. Okay, and on that basis, you know, you're talking about a skepticism that existed and perhaps a distrust of systems. Um, I, I like the distrust may not have been new and the skepticism, but maybe the actions coming out of it were new. So certainly in the early stages for PropTech, what you would describe as PropTech 2.0, um, we were seeing a lot of consumer led innovation and that seemed to be born out of the skepticism and frustration. But already we're seeing 
um, just five years, six years on, already we're seeing a shift towards more industry-led innovation. Is that is that just something we're witnessing uh, maybe in Ireland and the UK being maybe a little bit behind some of the other trends or would that really be indicative of how innovation is being driven? Um, well, I, I think there's a natural um, curiosity amongst the man in the street and the woman in the street about why it's not possible to trade your property in three days online. So the you know the mass market connects with real estate through housing, through house prices and house purchases. And what they observe is, is that although you can go online now to look at the listings, um, you can't rapidly transact. You've still got to go to a lawyer. You've got to do a lot of work. You, you need to assemble lots of paper documents. And I think the man in the street is genuine, genuinely a little bit confused about why that can't be done more quickly. And if you look at it, you know, it is possible to find reasons why it can't happen particularly quickly. It's, it's just too big a transaction. There's too much risk on behalf of the purchaser. They want to use lawyers because they want the protection of having a lawyer making sure that everything's okay. And if it's not okay, they want to be able to sue the lawyer or they want to be protected. So, so the man in the street, I think, as, as there's been overinvestment in the residential property market, technology, speedy transactions, all that. That's been a bit overblown, a lot of hubris. Meanwhile, however, there is a really good reason why commercial property owners need to innovate. You know, they, they really need to innovate. You know, the whole long lease structure where a developer builds a building speculatively, sells it to a pension fund that has got no connection with the tenant, and then sort of subcontracts the property management down to a, a broker or a, a property management company means there's no connection between the development of the of the of the product and the user of the product. And the word customer then has to come into it, right? So if you're running a hotel, the people using your hotel rooms are customers. But an office developer or an office investor doesn't think about his office tenants as, as customers. And this is what this is the real revolution. You know, this is this is what's really going to change because now with with um, with all of the things that have been going on, shorter leases, more power in the hands of tenants relative to landlords because of the creation of massive space, cyberspace. You look at the retail market. You know, there's all this cyberspace now through which we can trade. So the, the owner of retail property is in a less powerful position than he used to be. So now he's having to think about, well, how do I make my customers happy? You know, what do I have to provide? What services do I have to provide? And COVID has done the same to the office owner. You know, so how are you going to get people back into the office five days a week? And what happens if you can't get them back in the office five days a week? Um, you know, do you need to provide wellness facilities? Do you need yoga studios? Do you need great technology? Do you need great coffee? What is it that's going to make your building worthwhile? So we're now entering this phase where we need to connect customer satisfaction with rental values and lease structures and of course the um, the we works the co the co-living sorry the co-working operators have been in the vanguard of thinking about this stuff and um, i don't think the market will ever be the same again you know we used to have 25 year leases in the uk with five yearly operate only rent reviews we're never going to see that again Okay, there's so much to unpack in what you've just said there, but let's start with the most recent and work backwards. In terms of commercial property and the long leases, I fully accept um, that there is a, a, a strong demand, a desire for more flexibility, and that flexibility um, that flexibility inevitably, inevitably means shorter term leases. Although I am recalling 
um, a, a masterclass delivered by Anthony Slumbers, who um, obviously um, would be well known for yeah. uh, speaking about space as a service. And, you know, one of the things he, he noted through his research uh, and through research that's available is that um, short term or long term leases are getting shorter, but the short term leases are actually getting longer. But in terms of the commercial property long term lease structure, how do we reconcile what the market wants with what funders and landlords can afford to do? Because I, I think sometimes when we have this conversation, um, you know, there needs to be an understanding that each each uh, each cog in the wheel has a financial master. Everybody is accountable to somebody. So how can we make the shift that the market wants in relation to the commercial lease structure and still make it viable? Yeah, um, well, I I, um, I I don't think this is as big a problem as as some people possibly feel it is. You know, I think you've got to look at the equity provider and the debt provider differently, I think. So the equity provider has nothing to fear. You know, if you, if you produce a good product, then the fact that the lease is short should not be an issue. You know, the, the, the relevant data that you need to then focus on is, is how quickly do people release the space? What is the dead period? What's the downtime between leases, between the lease end and the new lease? If you start focusing on collecting that data and understanding how it works, you'll generally be pleasantly surprised. You know, the amount of vacancy at the end of a lease is generally short. People generally renew their leases. Tenants generally don't operate break clauses. You know, there's a lot of inertia and a lot of reasons why people want to stay in the same space. So landlords need to be much more confident about the product that they're offering and, and short leases. If that's what people want, then you'll find that your occupancy will be surprisingly positive. Um, debt providers might have a different view, but they just, they need to catch up with the idea that these things are, you know, living assets that, you know, they, they need to be, you know, a five-year debt term is long enough for a five-year lease, and that's probably the match. Um in, in the past, I think too many there's been there's been some dishonesty really. I think people have tried to use long leases to avoid the inevitable refurbishment cost that they know is, is coming around the corner. And the you know the the old way that a London landlord would think about this was well let's let's build the building, let's build it as cheaply as we can, and let's let it on a 25-year lease to JP Morgan and then sell it to, to a pension fund at a big price. And they're getting it off their balance sheet, right? So they're shifting it onto somebody else's balance sheet. Then the poor old pension fund comes along and they've got it on their balance sheet and they've got a 20-year lease. And at some point down the road, they've got to choose when to sell the building to avoid the big refurbishment cost that is down the road. And, and either they don't and they end up with an empty building, which is 25 years old, which needs completely complete demolition and rebuild. And their performance turns out to be awful because they bought the depreciation or they try and get rid of it 10 years early and pass it on to somebody else. But somebody's going to have to pay that price, you know. And, and you know, it's much better to have short leases so that you recognize the fact that every every year you need to be spending money on the building, just like we do on our houses. You know, you, you, don't, you don't want to buy a house, leave it for 30 years and then find, oh, oh my God, I've got to replace all the windows, replace all the doors, replace the bathroom, replace the kitchen. You need to be doing it on a rolling basis. And that's that's good for the environment. It's good for the economy. We should be retrofitting everything on a regular basis to produce buildings that are fit for purpose and that will be resilient in capital value terms. So none of this build, build, let it become obsolete and then worry about it later. You know, that, that's gone. Do you think it's two different conversations we need to be having? You know, it, um, 
on one hand, office buildings and on the other hand, retail, because the changes in retail are different to the changes in office while they're both changing a lot. Um, uh, it feels at this stage, the rate at which they're changing and the direction in which each are going respectively, it feels like they're going to end up in very different places where retail is going to be more online, whereas offices are going to be more experiential. And that's something that maybe we might have used to describe uh, retail trends. But, you know, just for example, I I was reading there in The Guardian last week about, I think it was it in um, somewhere in, in the UK, a Debenham store was taken over by a university and it has been a department store like prior to Debenham. It had been a department store for more than 100 years and now it's going to be used as a training facility and uh, tuition rooms uh, as part of the university for healthcare students. Um, and it just it, it definitely got me thinking about alternative uses for some of these uh, core retail buildings in town centres. You know, so are, are these changes that are coming and that's obviously going to have an impact on lease terms? There's, there's a, a great book, Rethinking Real Estate by Draw Proleg, Proleg. I don't know if you've you've seen that. I'm sure you have. But, you I know, have. his his, his um, analysis of the retail market is really interesting. You know, retail has been um, has, has always been in flux. You know, there's always been innovation in retail. It's, it's just constantly moving. You know, shopping centres in the UK are not that old. You know, they, they've sort of covered in-town shopping centres not that old. Retail warehouse parks are pretty new, you know. So... <laughs> There's always innovation and change going on in the retail market. I mean, I think you're right that, that there is continuing change, and it's a real challenge thinking what to do with shopping centres right now. Um, I, I suspect they're going to be experiential, more experiential, just like an office building will be. Um, and you know, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of retail property owners are thinking about that. Um, the, the really difficult ones are where where the rental value is clearly falling and in free fall and the operating costs of those shopping centres remain quite high. And so you've got a real problem there in making money out of them. Um, and it'll be interesting to see whether they offer opportunities for last mile logistics or for residential or, or, or experiential, you know, entertainment, whatever it's going to be. But that is a challenge. There's no doubt that's a challenge. I'm more, I'd be more comfortable with a retail warehouse park than, a, than an in-town shopping centre right now. So that is a challenge. There's no doubt about it. And, and But it, it's worth bearing in mind that the best performing property sector for the last 10 years has been high quality retail in Europe. It's not, uh, it's not a complete dog. You know, shops in Bond Street are still selling on 3% yields. Just because you've mentioned uh, Drawer's book there, uh, Rethinking Real Estate, um, and on the subject of rethinking real estate and the future of it, your own university is launching a new programme. Can you tell us a little about that? Yes, thank you. Um, Yeah, March the 31st, we're launching a programme called the Oxford Future of Real Estate programme. It's an online programme. It'll take, it's spread over six weeks. So you, you spend about seven or eight hours a week for six weeks on six topics, including the future of the commercial property markets, the future of real estate investment, uh, and so on. Um, it's a, about €2,000, and anybody can sign up for it. So it's the Oxford Future of Real Estate programme. Very good. And can you give us a little bit of insight about uh, the kind of things that would be covered on the curriculum? And that's that's really a roundabout way for me to hear from you without paying the €2,000 for the course and spending the time what are the trends we're likely to be seeing? Because I I remember reading a lot in early 2020 about the trends we were likely to see. And I am 
I am exhausted by the cliche of uh, the pandemic accelerating trends. And I think that's an oversimplification. We're definitely seeing a shift. We're seeing um, a, a shift away. So it's not just an acceleration of trends, but where, where uh, I suppose, given that you're you're working with research teams here, um, what kind of insights are likely to be shared? Well, you know, the big the big change. The first unit's about the property universe and the mega trends that are going to be hitting it, and um, a lot of those are pretty deep seated. You know, globalization, um, demographics, you know, migration, um, housing shortages, growing wealth divisions between the rich and the poor all the impact, social impact, and the big one, climate change. You know, so all of those things are much bigger than the COVID effect. And um, they, you know, the first module will be considering those things before we move on to looking at valuation, finance, investment in, the, in a not a traditional sense particularly, but just thinking about how you model these things before we then look at the commercial property markets, the future of retail, future of office, future of logistics, then the housing markets, you know, how do, how do we build enough houses for everybody and how... How, how investable is social housing, for example, which is one of the most attractive, one of the most attractive investment propositions I've seen in the last three years was affordable housing in Dublin. And, uh, you know, that's a great sector to invest in. Then the fifth module is about development, you know, sustainable development, um, developing regeneration, regenerating cities, smart buildings and, and climate resilience. And then the sixth module is all about building a resilient global portfolio. So if you had a, a billion pounds to invest, where would you put your money? And it wouldn't look like a traditional real estate portfolio. It wouldn't be 40% retail, 40% office, 20% industrial anymore. It will look completely different. And so the, the students are asked to think about what product would they create to sell to big investors right now? Okay. Do you do you see PropTech actually figuring into that? Like, are we going to see people who might ordinarily have um, invested in real assets maybe begin to look at investing in the technology supporting those real assets? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so PropTech's like the, uh, the the writing in a sticker rock goes all the way through it. You know, it's just fundamental now. Technology is the the opportunity we have. To, uh, to, to produce more efficient buildings, more energy efficient buildings, reduce carbon, produce more satisfying urban environments. The whole thing is technology focused and um, we have to take it extremely seriously. Um, Amara's law says that we have overestimate the impact of technology in the, in the short run, but we underestimate the impact of technology in the long run. And, and we're rapidly getting close to the long run now. Yeah, you know, I, I've always thought that that, that um, you know, that idiom really explains, I, I, I think the, it explains the unexplainable, which is human behaviour. Um, and maybe that's something that has been accelerated by the pandemic, you know, the culture shift that has to happen. Because I think that's the thing we tend to underestimate. And yet that's the thing that that slows progress. It's the human factor and the resistance to change, the needing to be convinced. And I think that that's something that might have been very strong prior to the pandemic that maybe, um, you know, has been weakened somewhat. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, human beings do adapt without realising, you know, so um, investment committee papers, we used to get paper maps, you know, we used to get descriptions of where somewhere is. We don't do that anymore. We just go onto Google Maps and we, and we zoom in on the building. We get a picture of it from the, from the air. We can do the street view. We, we got the whole thing in, on technology. Um, we're using Zoom right now. That's going to be something we're very comfortable with. 
we're, we're using a lot more technology than we than we actually accept we're using. You know, it, it's, it's part of our lives all the time. It's just step by step. You know, we're just getting more and more technologically competent, although um, I'm not as competent as I'd like to be, obviously. Well, I, I something tells me there's still opportunity. Uh, we still have another while to go in lockdown or certainly restrictions. So actually, I, I think there'll be plenty of, of opportunity to get even more familiar. Um, it occurs to me that a lot of the curriculum of the course, it's coming back to the UN's um, sustainable development goals. There's a huge crossover there. Um, there are so many social, moral, environmental reasons um, for us to be adopting those as an as a, an industry, have we established the business case for that? Oh, with, Do without, we need to? Without any doubt at all. You know, I, I I remember talking about sustainability ten years ago, and it was a word that we. I, I can remember using it, thinking, "Well, I don't really, I don't really get this stuff. I don't really buy it." Um, but I know I'm supposed to talk about it. There's no real evidence that it's going to add any value to my portfolio if I prove that I'm producing sustainable buildings. You know, it, it was just the right thing to say and do. Now, there's just no question whatsoever. You know, the, the idea that you need to compromise your return in order to do the right thing, I think that's gone. You know, I, I think, I think you know, if you just look at the, you know, sort of um, if we go, go for zero carbon by 2030, for example, if you want to be carbon neutral 2030, if you buy a building now in 2021, you'll be selling it into a market which is thinking about 2030. And so the value of any, the resale value of a building, which is not going to be energy efficient in 2028, which is when you're going to be selling it, you're going to be hammered. So it's already in the decision making. It's not, it's not pie in the sky anymore. It's not liberal wishy-washy thinking. It's right in the hardwired finance world now that you know you have to produce ESG uh, acceptable buildings portfolios business practices um, I chair um, a chair of fund management business in the UK called Newcore Capital we've just been certified as a B corporation it means that we have to run our business according to sustainable business principles 10% of our profits go to charity etc 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 it, you know that that is going to help us enormously in raising capital. It's going to help our business because pension funds need to show that they're doing the right thing. And and if we're going to win mandates, we're going to win it from people that have got the right ESG motivations, and they're looking for managers with the right ESG motivations. We're only going to buy buildings from developers with the right ESG motivations, and so on and so on and so on. And occupiers are only going to take our space if if it's healthy, if it's energy efficient, and if it's not throwing out carbon into the, into the air. So. The, the whole that, that game is now is everything's aligned beautifully and um, Greta Thunberg has done a great job. Um, COVID has helped, I think it's just accelerated things a little bit. Um, but there's no doubt that the big issue of for the next five to ten years is all about carbon. It's all about environmental performance, and the property market has that issue, you know, front front and sideways everywhere. You know, it's the, it's the big thing that we've got to cope with now. Yeah, no, look, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and in fact, I had the pleasure of speaking to Michael Beckerman and uh, about the launch of uh, Cretech Climate. So that's a, a global initiative to try 
bring the industry together and align um, on some of the actions that need to happen. So, you know, there are some great global initiatives happening at the moment. Before I let you go, you mentioned something to me and I really, you know, I, I just, I, I'd love to get some kind of clarification around it. I, I You mentioned there that, you know, you feel maybe the prop tech aimed at the residential market and maybe the consumer market might, might have been uh, at this point, it might be a little bit saturated, but at the moment we're still seeing a lot of ad hoc, you know, not not a great amount of cohesion across some of the consumer facing technology. And I, you, you mentioned that it might be the curiosity of the man in the street as to can this be done better? Um, and I agree, I think there is curiosity and confusion, but is there a level of acceptance that when it's a you know, when it's a big transaction for many people, it might be, you know, buying your home or getting your mortgage might be the biggest uh, financial commitment of your life. Is there a, as is there somehow an acceptance that um, it's it's OK not to embrace technologies? Has that has that been is, is that a problem or is this just something that you think technology and time is likely to align uh, people's expectations and they will just get used to doing all these transactions online, like even even co- like consumer-facing ones? Um, it's, it's a big question. I, I, I sort of the first, the, the reason why transactions will not be instantaneous and online and, and, and costless for quite a while is, is that number one, we need digital data about the homes in the in the new build market, we're capable of producing digital, you know, property passports, digital twins. It is possible to create a digital pack of information which describes everything there is to know about the house. You know, from the architect's plans through to the, you know, the boiler units, um, manual, whatever. Everything can be digital and handed over in a pack. Um, but that that is not going to work for 95% of the existing property market or housing market because the, the houses don't have that digital record. You know, the, the house I'm sitting in right now was built in 1880. There's no way I've got a digital architect's plan of it. So um, that's going to be slow. And, and, the, and the, second, the second aspect is that caveat emptor is the rule that we're working with, you know, the buyer beware. And so the buyer is going to be very careful before, you know, instantaneously transacting on a 1 million pound or euro building. So um, we're, we're going to go carefully down this road. You know, it, it's going to be it's going to be somewhat slow and painstaking. On the other hand, there's, there's no doubt that that um, that we will start to assemble digital records and, and those digital records will be much more efficient. And at the same time, you're going to see the big tech companies like Amazon, Google and others having a very subtle but insidious impact on the housing market. So Alexa, for example, you know, is going to be in the home. And once it's in the home, it's going to be collecting information about the home. And that feedback, that data feedback will be used to produce more efficient housing. Um, Facebook are already building affordable housing for their employees. You know, I think you're going to naturally find that the big tech companies start to get more and more involved in real estate. Google's built its European headquarters in St. Pancras. You know, these things are just getting closer together all the time. So once the big tech companies get involved, um, then then you will see some real change. But but don't expect it to be rapid for 95% of the housing market because we're dealing with, with assets with no digital information, you know. Um, somebody asked me about, I think I was, somebody asked me about a building that I'd owned um, a couple of years ago and said, could you, could you assemble all the information that the, 
the fire safety certificate, the smoke alarm detector stuff, or whatever it was. And could I find any of the paperwork? You know, was it on my computer? No. Was it in my filing cabinet? Yes, some of it. Was it my wife's filing cabinet? Yes, some of it. Was it in our lawyer's office? Yes, some of it. I mean, it's a mess. You know, it occurs to me that um, if there was a value in having a second asset, albeit a digital one, in the same way digital twins would be a second asset when uh, design and build teams are handing over an asset to their client, if there was value in that, we'd find a way to make it happen very quickly. Oh, that's for sure. And, and there are people out there who are definitely trying to think about that. You know, how do you incentivize people to produce digital property passports? You know, what's the what's in it for them? And I've seen several failed attempts and people will keep trying. You know, Facebook for houses is, is one of the ideas. You know, why, why wouldn't every house have its own Facebook page with its history? You know, who, who owned it before? Um, what parties have you had in it? Who lives nearby? What are the cafes like? You know, there, there's going to be a, you know, a, the potential is there for creating a site for every house in Ireland, every house in England. Um, and why would why do you need to put a house on the market? Why wouldn't you just say, I want to live in Ballsbridge? Is it Ballsbridge? Dublin 4, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. you know, I want to live in Ballsbridge. That's my favorite street. Why would I just make an offer on all the houses in that street and see what happens? You know, that that's you know, that's possible, that's technically possible. So I can see us going that way. Um, but what ha- not needs to happen, as we as you've quite rightly raised, is um, what what is the incentive for people for loading all this data? And it may simply be that somebody's going to make you an offer without you asking for it. You know, somebody's going to, you know, have you ever had the situation where somebody's put a postcard through your front door letterbox saying, I really want to live in this street. Would you sell your house? You know, and it's it's quite, yeah. it's quite arousing, if you don't mind me using that word. Well, no, I'm afraid I was the person who was putting that note through the letterboxes for about a decade. <laughs> so uh, I, I see the benefit of the hybrid um, on and offline approach. Um, yeah. But listen, thank you. So you've been so generous with your time. I suppose the, the final the final thing maybe to ask, and maybe maybe this question is answered through the, the future of real estate course, but um, has the pandemic um, created any shift in the trends that you were seeing for prop tech um, in 2021 and 2022? Uh, no. Um, the, 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 I suppose there's a sort of a, an obvious unicorn, which is going to be a health monitor for buildings, which probably lines up with a health monitor for people. So I, I can see that the, 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 I suppose this is an idea I didn't have a year ago that, you know, I, I suspect I'll be having a wearable which will give me access to a building. And, and you know, if the alarm doesn't go off, then I'm allowed into the building. And, and if I'm walking up and down a street in Dublin looking for a bar to go into, I might in 2030 be looking for a dial on the outside of that room that tells me that the air's good and that there's not a lot of COVID floating around in the air. And so, you know, that sort of health tech being applied to buildings is probably an accelerated technology invention that we will see more of. Very good. Um, Andrew, again, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and best of luck with the course. I look forward to to uh, monitoring as well the cohort that goes through that course and hopefully we'll be talking to them about their innovations. That was Professor Andrew Baum of um, the 
Professor of Practice Said Business School, University of Oxford. That's it from us this week. Thank you for listening in to Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Also, my thanks to Peter Rice on sound. We're back at the same time next week from myself, Carol Talon, and all the team here. Stay safe.